Hello, everyone. My name is Lou Palumbo, and welcome to Between the Lines. Welcome to the show, and for everyone that is joining us, I want to thank you. We have some interesting news recently that at some point we're going to relate to, maybe not this show, but in the future. I do want to say how fortunate I feel to be able to participate in this broadcast to try to change the message in this country. There's no question the extent of division and polarization is palpable. Our intention here is to speak to the truth, use common sense, logic, reason, and try to bring some compromise to issues that are just haunting us. So thank you for joining us today. When we come back, we're going to take some calls, so stay with us. Welcome back to Between the Lines, and we have our first caller on the line. Let's see who that is. Who is this calling me from Colorado? I wish I was calling you from Colorado, Lou. This is Jonah, and I live in Michigan. I used to live in Colorado. Very good. Michigan's not a bad place. Colorado's a great state, by the way, Jonah. Colorado's an awesome state. It's just getting super crowded and super expensive, and we have uh, grandparents living in Michigan, so we moved back to be closer with our little ones. Yeah, that's important. Relationships with your children is nothing more important. Amen. So what's on your mind today? Well, I know you've had a long career and seems like a really successful one. I'm curious what your take is on this whole Lady Gaga dog walker incident. I, I feel so miserable that the dog walker got shot. And I know that Lady Gaga put out a $500,000 reward for her bulldogs to be returned. Sounds like a woman came forth and said that she found them. And the police are telling Gaga not to pay it out until they make sure that the woman had nothing to do with it. I guess. My question for you is, is this kind of setting a precedent for the future for putting a price on the heads of every celebrity dog out there? You know, like, what's your take on it? Well, even the LAPD has alluded to the fact that they were not particularly pleased with the ransom amount. Mm. They alluded exactly to what you're saying to, we're going to start to put bounties on dogs. But more importantly, if you really think outside the box... If we're putting up $500,000 for your pet, what will be put up for your children? This is a very dangerous precedent. In reference to the incident itself, I am pretty sure it's still under investigation, not just to identify the young lady that came forward with the dogs, but to find out what the backstory is on this, because it seems very strange that two men drove down a street and arbitrarily stopped after witnessing someone walking a dog and decided that they wanted those dogs so badly that they were prepared to commit a homicide. Yeah. There's a little more to the story. What we're concerned about at this point is does she have enough juice to kind of sit on the real story here? Yep. You don't know if this was the a message from someone that was had some personal rub with her or a business rub. You know, we're, we're still feeling our way around this story. But you also notice it kind of went away, which is probably what she would want and understandably so. But the incident was quite unfortunate. Yeah. I mean, to think that to kidnap two dogs or three dogs, you would take the life of a human being is pretty depraved. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, it's, it's a little over the edge, you might say. But I think that's the problem with the culture today. We're a little over the edge with a lot of things, uh, Jonah. Yeah, you're probably right. I'm curious, before I leave you, what is your favorite part of your job? Like, I can imagine that people would assume it's being close to celebrities or getting to, to hang in that realm of the world. But what do you, what do you love most about what you do? So let me, let me kind of categorize what I do, first of all. I don't protect celebrities. I protect people in the entertainment industry. They're not celebrities. They're, they're entertainers. So Got it. we have to requantify them in the culture for a myriad of reasons. But 
if I was going to tell you the things I enjoyed most about what I do, it's about giving people peace of mind, comfort that when we're with them, that no harm will come to you. Mm. We've had a very, very broad stroke on who we've had the, the honor and the pleasure of uh, protecting, which have included cabinet members of the presidents, Bush and Obama. I've had a head of state I protected for 22 years. Wow. Member of the royal family in the United Kingdom. I have the, the honor and the pleasure to currently work for Governor Schwarzenegger, who's, I just love the guy. He's just, to know him is incredible. That's awesome. Yeah, it's sad that he can't run for president because he's not a born citizen. He's got an interesting perspective on things, and he's equally critical of both sides of the aisle because he uses a lot of common sense, logic, reason, and decency in everything that he speaks to and the remedies that would apply. So, But I, I love working for this guy. I've worked for a lot of people in the entertainment industry. I ran the Academy Awards. I ran the Golden Globes for 14 years. Wow. I got lucky. You know, I'll be very candid yeah. with you. You know, And that's really a little bit of my, my backdrop. I've been in this industry a long time, and I love what I do. There's nobody as good as we are. My company, it's not just me, by the way. It's the men and women that support my efforts. I hire or retain the services of individuals with very unique backgrounds. They're all out of law enforcement. They have excellent people skills. They dress well. They're accessible as people. That thing that we try to impress upon the entertainment people, that's very important with their, with their fan base. It's important to us that people feel that we're accessible to them, that we're approachable. Absolutely. It's a great industry. It's one of the fastest growing industries in the country, no surprise, based on the interesting state of affairs in America today. We're only trumped, I think, by healthcare. So Interesting. I've had a lot of good fortune is the only way I can put it to you. The best thing in the world is doing what you love, and it sounds like you're doing that, man. So keep on keeping on. I intend on for a little while at least, you know. Jonah, so I answered your first question. Is there anything else I can help you with today? Yeah, I just had uh, one more question. I was kind of curious about, I don't know if you saw the interview that Oprah did with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry and, you know, the fact that they've decided to leave the royal family and the life of the royal family. And it sounds as though the royals are now stopping security for them. Um, I don't know if that's backlash or if that's just standard procedure, but I'm curious what your thoughts are. on even though they decided to leave the royal family, he's still basically royalty and they are very much in the public interest and you think it's a good idea that the queen and the the family decided to stop security for them yeah i actually been asked about this a couple of times and and my response stays the same jonah i think it's very ill-conceived to remove the security of members of the royal family the simple reality of the situation is really simple the children that harry and Meghan have are children that are in line to the throne. They're actually part of the royal family. And to suggest that we would pull security and not protect their mother is very short-sighted. Harry's a whole nother discussion. His father is the heir to the throne. He is the heir apparent. So what we're doing now is we're taking security off the son of the heir apparent. I mean, I'm not quite sure what the thought process is or the mechanism there, but I do have to tell you something you might find interesting. I had picked up one of the members of the royal family from the United Kingdom, Back around 1990, okay. similar circumstance, became estranged from her husband. She had two daughters, very nice young girls. In fact, my client was very nice also. Long story short, they pulled a security, which worked out to my good fortune. I was introduced to her by a prior client. As far as her being in better hands than mine, just not the case. That mm-hmm. I'm very confident in saying that. But as far as the message that's sent out, it's just horrific. 
you don't do this to the parents yeah. of children of the family. It sends a very, very bad message. Keep your personal feelings and your politics and your agenda on the side and keep your thoughts clear and stay focused on really what your responsibility is. So the other stories about the Oprah show, the interview, not foreign to me. The royal family has a lot of very interesting standards by which you must must live. I don't want to really critique it too much because I was exposed to it in conversation with a client. But they have certain boundaries and behavior. And, you know, as far as Megan goes, and I have to tell you this quite candidly, I was in the process of picking up Diana just before her death. Mm-hmm. You know, these are young women today. You know, Diana was a young woman. Sarah Ferguson was a young woman. Yeah. Megan Markle's a young woman. And Megan Markle's an American. And I don't think there's any way that she could possibly anticipate what she was going to come up against. You know, I can tell you stories, and I, want, I need to be very careful, but there have been other members of our society that have married into families in Europe, and they're not well received. I don't know why. They're just Americans. It's just they have this thing, this territorial thing sometimes, yeah. and it interferes with their better judgment. So, you know, as far as Meghan and Harry go, I understand, and I'm disturbed to hear this, that they were paid $7 million for this interview. I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, if that's true, that's disturbing. You know, not to digress back to Lady Gaga and the $500,000, but I only can think about all the children that could be fed properly, have clothing put on their backs or shoes on their feet in an indigent neighborhood, which is another discussion for another day, Jonah. Sure. But somehow all of these ultimately intertwine because it lends itself to what we're doing today, our decision-making, our assessment of situations, our judgments, and how they impact our living day-to-day. You know, I I just think to go back to Meghan Markle one more time, I wish them well. I understand what they're dealing with because I've had the fortune of rubbing up against it, and I learned a lot about it, but I would not pull the security from Harry or Meghan under any circumstance. And whether the Queen likes to use this term or not, that's her grandson. What else is there to say? There's nothing else to say. You're exactly right. Lou, it was good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. It was great having you. Welcome back. And it appears that we have a voicemail question. And by the way, if you're interested in communicating with us and you'd like to leave a voicemail in the form of a question, please do so at betweenthelines.tv. And I encourage you to do so. So let's hear our Between the Lines caller. Hey, Lou, this is Brian from State Line, Nevada. Question for you. I see the House has passed the universal background check. What are your thoughts on that bill? What is it trying to accomplish? Does it really do anything? And how does that square with you with the Second Amendment, being that it states the Second Amendment should not be infringed? What are your thoughts on that? I appreciate it. Well, to just give you a little bit of background on this, it replicates an attempt a number of years ago under the Obama administration to address an issue of universal background checks. And the real sensitive part of this, which is very, very important that I think the majority of America is in agreement with, is the part that lends itself to your ability to go into a gun show and without providing any identification, walk out with a deadly weapon. That is really the key to this bill. I think it's important that that element of this is passed. I do know that there's also concerns that with a very large increase in the number of people participating in NICS checks, which is the National Instant Criminal Background Check, over 40 million last year, that they need to provide our FBI and Department of Justice sufficient time to properly vet individuals before we just disperse these these firearms to them in gun stores. So 
there's also one element of it that needs to be addressed that is just completely misrepresented. You cannot buy a firearm over the internet. You can identify on the internet a firearm you would like to acquire and then start a transaction with lend, which would lend itself to forwarding that firearm to a federal firearms dealer in your state of residence, at which point you would have to go in and provide identification, you're a resident, and then you would participate in that NICS check. That's a little bit of a misunderstanding, and I don't quite understand why they're putting forth this issue of the internet, because there's no such thing as buying guns through the internet without background checks being conducted. And just for everyone's edification, this NICS check is facilitated through a form called a 4473. It's a federal firearms form. It goes to the federal government. The other important element of this is the state regulations. Each state has its own regulations regarding the acquisition and disposition of firearms. So one of the other elements they looked at was the casual transfer of firearms from one individual to another without going through a licensed FFL dealer, which facilitates the background check. So there are elements of this that I think are very important. I do not think that they infringe upon your Second Amendment right. I just think they ultimately lend itself to more responsible transfer of firearms. So they're on the right track. I'm just hoping this doesn't become a real political issue. Once again, this is about the conversation, the civility, the decency, and the compromise. So if they came away with closing the loophole, for example, at gun shows, that's been a heavy lift for some reason, which completely perplexes me. The majority of, of Americans, as I mentioned earlier, are in favor of that. And the other part of this that I think is very important is providing our law enforcement agencies, such as the FBI, adequate time to properly vet individuals, especially in light of the fact that last year, as I mentioned a moment ago, we had over 40 million NICS checks. I want to clarify something about that also. A NICS check is a request to buy a firearm. On one NICS check, you could buy 10 firearms. So if people are thinking 40 million NICS checks is 40 million guns, they could be completely wrong. And there's a much broader discussion that needs to take place with this whole firearms or gun control issue. And there is a midpoint on this. And, and I think that the focus of it really lends itself to people who should not acquire firearms, not acquire them. And that just doesn't mean felons. It means people who are mentally and emotionally not well. Welcome back to Between the Lines. And, you know, and giving this some further thought about the Lady Gaga incident, one thing people may not be aware of is that, as a rule, the entertainment industry people are the focal point of people who are not mentally well. They communicate in various forms, emails, sending flowers, attempting phone calls, and they usually are alluding to some type of relationship that they have with them that isn't realistic, like they're dating or they're married or they're their offspring, or sometimes they have an animus towards them. And I just, I'm dealing with a case right now with someone who's receiving emails that aren't threatening, but are very disrespectful and make reference to this person in a very disgusting way. This incident with Lady Gaga is a little bit of a departure. This was more of a crime of fruition. In other words, the people who perpetrated this intended on benefiting from it. By that, I mean they probably thought if they could take these two or three dogs and market them somewhere to people that would be interested in them, they would reap the financial reward, quote unquote, or in this instance, a half a million dollars as a bounty, so to speak, you know, as a ransom. So it's a little bit of a departure. It's not the status quo. You know, I've been bouncing around this for more than three decades, and I've 
had the pleasure of working for a lot of individuals. And the thing that I came away with oftentimes is that the mental health in this country isn't the best it's been. I can tell you that it trended differently in the 1990s. I started to see more of a legitimate need for people in the entertainment industry to have security with them. You know, people aren't aware of this, but at one time in this industry, it was a status symbol to have a bodyguard. You know, it was like how important I am. It shifted from that to necessity. It was no longer posturing or trying to put out this perception that you were so important that you had to have armed people or big people around you to protect you. There became a legitimate need. And as I said earlier, that occurred in the 1990s. It continued to progress through the 90s, just to continue a little chronology with you. 1998, we did turn a corner in Columbine. I was there the day after with Sarah Ferguson. She flew in there to comfort and console some of the the victims and the survivors We went off in a different direction in the culture, and there's nothing to be said from 98 moving forward, 22 years, the number of mass shootings has increased exponentially. I think the mental health of this country is diminishing exponentially. I don't think that we're really addressing the mental illness or the emotional illness problems on the scope and scale that they exist. There's a lot of broad discussions that need to take place, and I'm encouraging callers to call in and probe me on these because I could speak to them, you know, I think to your satisfaction as far as giving you a responsible assessment as to what's going on. You know, one thing I do want to say is after 9-11, when the World Trade Center was attacked and the Pentagon, you know, my business spiked and went through the roof. We almost ran out of hours in the day to schedule people. It wasn't so much a shortage of manpower. I've always had a good pool of resources pretty much all over the country and through other relationships internationally. But the demand just went through the roof, and we've been kind of living on the edge of our seat since that point. Main concern, active shooters, you know. I tell people this all the time so they're not misled about my business. My business is diplomacy, people skills, and service. Yes, all of us are law enforcement agents. When necessary, we can carry firearms. But it's shifted. You know, we're worried now about people coming into a hotel in New York City or Los Angeles or Washington, D.C., or for that matter, anywhere in this country. Shouldn't get too comfortable. We're seeing shootings in movie theaters in Colorado, if I'm correct, and Santa Barbara at a college campus. There's something going on here. Some of it lends itself to terrorism. Some of it is a further dive into this whole problem of what's going on mentally and emotionally with our youths. The thing I also find interesting in starting to critique the culture and the increase in violence with young people in particular under 25 is this trend that's set into place after 1998 at Columbine. One of the problems is we are exposing our children to technology and to video games, which teach them weapon systems, tactics, all types of little intricacies that make what you're going to do in assaulting someone or groups far more efficient. And unfortunately, some of these are being supported by members of our special forces units who have now detached and are making a living as technical consultants. You know, we hear a lot of discussions about gun control. I don't want to start talking about the First Amendment and the press and and your freedom of speech, but we might want to start to examine what we're exposing our children to once again. This all goes back to our children, our children, our children, because as I say to you, they're the foundation of the future of this nation. But um, there's a big discussion going on in the culture today as to what is real risk? How do you mitigate it? You know, can you teach a civilian what we refer to as situational awareness? 
It's something you acquire in law enforcement and even the military over a certain span of time. You just, your senses heighten as to who is in your environment. Those are also tools that you use, by the way, when you're protecting individuals or groups. You become extremely aware of people that are not in rhythm with your environment. There's a, there's a rhythm to this culture. It's how people navigate. You can see it in their eyes a lot of times, their body movement who they're interacting with and who they're not, how they're posturing. There's a lot of elements to this that that come into play. But we need to start to have some intelligent conversations as to how to mitigate a lot of what's going on without alarming the public, without infringing upon your rights. You know, we had a whole discussion about Washington, D.C. and the inauguration and suspending people's rights to protest. That's guaranteed in the Constitution. The responsibility of your elected officials and your law enforcement community is to create an environment so you can do that without it being problematic. In other words, you don't want to necessarily put them at the steps of the Capitol, but you could have put them in a somewhat controlled environment, screening them for weapons, taking temperatures if necessary, because as you know, this took place during the COVID virus, but we don't suddenly start to suspend your rights. That's not the exercise here. This is about us becoming creative, you know, and thinking outside the box and working outside the box, which I will tell you was one of my keys, you know, for myself personally. And I tell people this, never accept no as an answer. You know, you can't go too far off the rails with that. But as a rule, if you want to fix something, you can. It's just about your mindset. So, you know, it was another case, as you're probably aware, with Steve Wynn. They kidnapped his daughter right off his property. Mr. Sinatra also had his son, Frank, kidnapped. And that was legitimate also, even though people thought that might have been staged. It wasn't. And I can tell you that because I worked for the Sinatras. That's a different set of circumstances. You know, your children are your heart. Your pets, you know, I love my dogs, but I don't get too carried away when if something happens to one of them, which is just their life cycle, for example, or if they run out in the street and get hit by a car, it's as devastating as when your children get hurt. You know, you have to keep this thing, how would you say, in perspective. Although I do want to say there are people that build their lives around their pets because they don't have children. So you, you can't invalidate people's feelings, but... We're going to go to a break, and we'll be right back. It would appear that we have a follow-up to Brian's question in an email form, and he's inquiring as to what my position is on individuals acquiring firearms. That's a really good question. And my feelings on that have changed dramatically over 20 and 30 years. At one time, I was... um, inclined to discourage individuals who are not from law enforcement from acquiring handguns in particular because most times they end up being used against you. Today, I am really conflicted. You know, I I think people in America are starting to realize that we're having a breakdown in law enforcement. I would say individuals and groups have decided to punish law enforcement when they think they've done something egregious without even giving them due process. We take their employment and even threaten them with imprisonment. So what does that lend itself to is a public that feels like they may have to depend on themselves to be safe. So if in fact it's your mindset that you want to acquire a handgun, for example, or an assault rifle, if you have a state that allows it or a shotgun, my recommendation is that you receive extensive, extensive training And you read extensively the law so you understand the boundaries by which you may use this tool. I cannot overemphasize the importance of training, you know, preparation. We're seeing even in the law enforcement community today, I don't want to say there's a lack or an insufficient amount of training, but we do need to train law enforcement more. Now, with that being said, if we need to train our law enforcement people more, what do you think, how do you think that translates to civilians? They need at least as much as we have, at least as much. And they need to be as equally familiar with the law, especially in areas where you brandish weapons or you decide that you may have to use deadly physical force. 
So to go back to the beginning of this question and this email, it's a great question. My opinion has changed. I encourage people today to be able to take care of your family, not because you're going to be a gunslinger and protect the neighborhood, but to protect your own little space. And I would tell you that if you intend on doing that, please get the best training you can possibly get, best training you can afford. I would also encourage you to read the law in the state in which you reside. And if you happen to be traveling to another state and you're taking that firearm, you better read those local laws and state laws in that state that you're in because they vary state to state. Your your prerogatives vary. So I hope I was able to answer that question. And we do have one more voicemail caller, and I'm ready. Hi, I'm Tara from Nashville. I was wondering how the topic of police brutality is viewed by you since you had a past occupation as a law enforcement officer and what you think is the cause and solution for the problem. Very, very good question, Tara. And it's a hot one today, as you know, because a lot of police officers are currently being prosecuted across the country for what is being referred to as police brutality. It's just unacceptable. You know, you have to realize that law enforcement cultures differ by region training and practices and tolerance where I'm from in New York and the Northeast, it's much different than it is out West to the South or say in the Pacific Northwest. So I just want to say that, you know, the frames of reference from which I speak deal primarily with myself. I want to be very careful about what I say because I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression, but in law enforcement, they can't train us enough. One of the things they do try to train us on is never allowing us to take energies or aggression that's directed towards us personally, which is very, very hard when you're in the middle of something. It's really against the authority of the uniform that you wear. There is no excuse for police brutality, period. And we are paying the price for it today. It's fueling the division in this country. It's polarizing us. It's more clearly defining in a lot of instances the fact that there's just inequality in the minority communities. But more importantly, moving forward is our inability to properly assimilate the minority communities into mainstream America. They live with great disparity. And I'm going to create a very simple equation for you. And I'm going to tie this back into police brutality. A lack of education translates to unemployment. Unemployment translates to crime. And now you're going to find this interesting. A lot of police officers, especially white police officers, the first time that they ever brush up against a minority, for example, is when they put on a uniform. A lot of their perceptions, their notions or observations of minorities, for example, are conveyed to them through television or what I refer to as the idiot box. That doesn't necessarily mean it's accurate. You know, I listen to a lot of rhetoric. A lot of people critique things and say things that are just way off topic, way misaligned from the truth. Now, to go back to this issue of police brutality, the real issue today is the amount of police brutality that our minorities are being subjected to. Well, we need to fix the minorities' living dynamic so they're no longer dependent upon crime to get through the day. You know, there's a whole cultural thing here, and we keep ignoring it once again. And this is a problem that exists on both sides of the aisle. We talk about a lot of things that are supposedly forms of appeasement or reparation. You know, we're letting you paint streets and tear down statues and commit arson and loot and burn businesses and disrupt communities. But at the end of the day, does that really translate to anyone being afforded an opportunity to get a better education, not to go to a classroom where they maintain order, live in streets that are safe, not that parents worry about their children just being on the front steps for fear that they'll become part of what we call collateral damage. 
Their living conditions in general are substandard. Their diets are substandard. Their medical care is substandard. And all of this ties right back into the big question about police brutality. Maybe if we could just elevate the whole living standard of the demographic that feels that they're majorly the focal point of police brutality. And that doesn't mean that Caucasian people, for example, aren't on the receiving end of police brutality, because I can tell you they probably are. It's never been a practice of mine, and I have to tell you this sincerely. I've been in this community 48 years. I've never witnessed it. Now, with that being said, I'll tell you something interesting that we used to do that we can no longer do, and you might appreciate this one day as a parent. You know, if we caught your kid drinking or maybe even smoking a joint, we didn't just summarily arrest him and start to put his life on, his life on the wrong path. We would contact parents and bring them out there. Of course, we did a little background check on the individual to make sure he wasn't a repeat offender, per se, or didn't have a prior criminal history in other areas. But we just didn't summarily destroy children's lives because they were 14, 15, 16 going through what we call normal delinquency. We had discretion. Today, we don't have discretion. We can't really help the kids in the street. If we catch you, you either did it or you didn't do it. You're either getting locked up or you're not. So you have to realize that the police are also taught to use discretion. There's the spirit of the law and the letter of the law. I've conducted traffic stops, interestingly enough, on one woman. (laughs) You'd be amused. I could see as I was behind her, her three little children in the back bouncing around like it was romper room. Well, of course, she came to a stop sign and went right through it. The whole stage was set. So now I put the lights and sirens on the car and I pull her over and I walk up to the window. The first thing I said to her was, I'm not giving you a ticket because that would have just added to the problem that day. She had enough going on, right? But I said, ma'am, I said, I know they're in your ear. I could see them through your back window, but you have to try to keep a handle on this because you roll a stop sign and someone else has the right of way. You're going to end up in an accident, could end up with fatalities. Where I'm really going with this is that there's been a lot of discretion taken away from police. Police today don't know what they're supposed to do or what they're not supposed to do. They're being hamstrung by technology. Technology affords elected officials and even the public, the community, to sit there and Monday morning quarterback or critique after the fact force that you may have used to take somebody into custody. I can tell you it's not pleasant forcibly taking people into custody. Are you capable of overexerting? Yeah, you can. You're only supposed to use the force necessary. But that's a really gray area because how do you measure that, you know? And you also have to deal with the fact that you're dealing with human beings that are police officers that have fears and concerns, one of which is about going home and being with their children. So the stage is set. And the solution to this is more training, more role-playing. I'm going to introduce you to a concept called role-playing now. What they would do to us in a police academy, for example, they would stage a traffic stop, like one I just alluded to. But this time... The operator of the motor vehicle we stopped was hostile and aggressive. So they were now trying to teach us how not to react to that, how to keep your composure, keep your civility, keep your decency, let the guy vent a little bit perhaps, then address this in a manner in which you thought was appropriate. Either give him a warning, give him a summons, or whatever the case may be. So role-playing is very, very important. It will not fix this problem across the board because of the spontaneity of incidents that police are dealing with. You know, you walk into gun calls, you walk into violence, you walk into victims who have been the focal point of of violence. And it's a lot of it's just instinctive. You know, you hope through the path of the course of your career, your instincts and your intuitions continue to develop because they become your survival mechanism. No excuse for police brutality. Training will help arrest that problem. We almost can't train our police enough, but I can say this with certitude, In instances where it would appear to be 
excessive force, for example, which lends itself to the term police brutality, you need to take a step back and get a, a truthful and accurate assessment of what exactly happened. Never walk away from due process, which the police are, are entitled to, because what that will translate to is your police aren't working for you anymore, which ties into a prior caller's question about how I feel about you having a firearm. You know, all these these questions and these topics, they intermingle, you know, but there is no excuse. I do say that law enforcement today is more keenly aware than it's ever been before of the importance of training the police officers and exposing them to as many circumstances in a training type mechanism as they can so they're prepared to deal with these really volatile, spontaneous, explosive instances. One other one I do want to make reference to that I think will be helpful. When you deal with what we call an EDP, that's called an emotionally disturbed person, that could be a person who has psychotic tendency, who's on medication, who stopped taking this medication. That can go to hell in a handbasket in a New York minute, as we say. And these people are of excessive strength. You know, the adrenaline starts to pump. And oftentimes it takes four, five, six police officers to restrain an individual. A lot of times that doesn't necessarily occur in the street. It occurs because we get radio calls to homes where people are caring for family members and they're on medication. But there are other optics now I'm going to make a reference to for you regarding police brutality. So you walk down the block in Times Square and you see four or five police officers restraining one individual. The immediate perception is this is police brutality, it's overkill. It actually isn't, and I'll explain to you why. And once I do, you'll understand it. If you have one police officer attempt to take one individual into custody, the amount of force that he will need to use to restrain or subdue him will probably be far more dramatic than if five police officers use less force across the board and restraining an individual. They're less likely to get hurt, and the individual they're taking into custody is less likely to get hurt. I think that there's some common sense attached to that. This is never going to be a free-for-all, and I will tell you truthfully, it's happened where they're in the process of subduing someone, and someone's unnecessarily kicking or punching someone we're trying to take into custody. It happens. That's the part of this conversation that lends itself to the emotional attachment. You have to continuously train the cops not to get personally invested. But to go back to what I just said to you, everyone's seen it. The news plays it for you every day. Four police officers, five police officers subduing one individual. It looks like police brutality. No, it's a safer way to take someone into custody. If I take you into custody and I know how to do it through arm bars or takedowns or a number of different restraints, I'm going to end up damaging your shoulder, for example, or other parts of your body to get you handcuffed. If I have a couple of my associates and we each grab a limb, we're going to use less force to get you into custody. So the whole optic of police brutality is something that's very, very sensitive, very, very dangerous. It lends itself to kind of predetermining what police are doing. You have to allow the narrative to flow through so you can get an accurate depiction, as I mentioned earlier, as to what exactly transpired. I think everybody's aware today that we have some interesting cases that are about to hit the court. One of them is in Minneapolis. They just adjourned the case. They're picking a jury, but they want to recharge this individual with under Minneapolis uh, law for murder in the third degree, which is done through what they call uh, depraved indifference towards human life. In the state of New York, it's, it's a subdivision. Murder is normally defined as with the intent to cause the death of another, it results Depraved indifference is when you act with depraved indifference towards human life resulting in the death of another, you're guilty of murder as well. We're now going to have this on display, and I think a lot more is going to come out other than the optic, which was completely inappropriate, of kneeling on the neck of George Floyd. That's not who we are. This man was handcuffed. 
There is a number of ways to continue to restrain him without creating that horrific optic. I don't know if George Floyd died as a direct result of pressure being exerted to his neck. Was he on a controlled substance? Did he have a pre-existing medical condition? All this will come out in the trial and will lend itself hopefully to a just verdict. But the optic dealing with police brutality was right there. It's what everybody doesn't want to see. It's what everyone doesn't expect from your law enforcement community. And they're right. But you have to go case by case. I don't want to continue on this for the rest of the day. I want to revisit it another time, perhaps with another caller. But there was another case in Atlanta where a gentleman fell asleep in the Wendy's fast food line, the pickup line. And the police officers got a call. And when they arrived there, the guy was obviously intoxicated. They were able to determine that he was. And the guy was rather large. And what transpired was he assaulted the police and robbed them. Rob, just so you know what robbery is, robbery is forcible theft. If I take an apple off your desk when you're not looking, that's larceny. That's theft. If I punch you in the nose and take your apple, that's robbery, robbery, forcible theft. So he committed a robbery. Robbery against the police officer is a felony. It's a second-degree felony in the state of New York, automatic. He then attempts to, to flee, and you have to know his cops were going like, Jesus, if he's doing that to us, what's he going to do if he encounters someone who can't take care of themselves or doesn't have the tools or experience in the street to deal with this? So... The police officer made a decision to shoot him and, and unfortunately shot him in the back. Now we're going to have to critique and get to the bottom of this case because, again, that's a brutal act. I do want to say something, and the public needs to understand this. I don't know of any cops that revel in hurting people. I don't know of anyone that uses their gun or has to consider using their gun that we're not worried about how it comes back to bite us. Because we know the climate in which we live. There's no incentive for us to go out there and engage people forcibly or to shoot anybody because the public automatically is assuming we've overstepped our authority. It's the times we're living in. This narrative is being fed by the media, unfortunately. Not all of them. There are some very uh, responsible journalists in the media. There are some that are not too responsible. Politics is entering into this. A lot of times in journalism, someone's political affiliation will influence their perception of an incident. We're in interesting times. We need to dial it back, which is really going back to the essence of this show. We need to dial it in, get the common sense, logic, reason, and truth, and try to come to compromise on a lot of issues that are taunting us today. So I thank you for that follow-up question. That was an excellent question also, and I hope that I answered it sufficiently for you. So to synopsize today, you know, we've spoken a little bit about mental illness. We need to delve into that more deeply. We've brushed up against gun control. We want to start a conversation to get to some form of intelligent compromise that will lend itself to elevating the safety, first and foremost, of our children. You know, even our children are in peril today going into the classroom. It's just inconceivable. You cannot overemphasize the importance of screening individuals who want to acquire deadly weapons. You cannot overemphasize training, whether it be for a civilian or for a, a law enforcement agent currently in service. There's a few more topics we'll get, get into, but for today, we're going to kind of wrap it right there. I encourage you to call in. I thank Apple and Spotify again for providing us this opportunity to air this show on their outlets. And I do encourage you to call in and please ask questions. The exercise here today is to bring to light some of the topics that are, a, are more difficult for us to reconcile because we're being misled at times intentionally and to get to the truth. And maybe what this will translate to is changing the political environment and maybe the environment that lends itself to media outlets so we can get more of a responsible message, more of a responsible approach to problem solving. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you guys call in. <laughs>